It's good to have you with us this morning. Uh, there are many faces that are our guests with us this morning, uh, family guests, guests that maybe have been with us on Christmas Eve. And so I want you to know that you are welcome with us here this morning. Our regular practice is to take a book of the Bible and to work through that entire book uh, verse by verse uh, so that we can get the whole scope of what God is trying to say to us. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be uh, just stepping away from the practice of going through an entire book and looking at different passages as we look at different topics uh, over this holiday season. Uh, back in September, uh, my wife Barbara and I, we went down to Virginia Beach, and it sounds, it sounds really exciting, except all of our time was spent inside. We went to a conference called Side by Side, and it was put on by an organization called Um, the Christian Counseling Education Foundation, CCEF. Uh, Their mandate and their desire is to see Christ return to counseling and counseling returned to the church. Uh, Prior to that, uh, God had been carrying our family through a season of both rest and restoration in the gospel. And as Providence would have it, uh, Barbara and I signed up for this conference, went down together, uh, spent 30 hours in the car driving back and forth, uh, and then about 12 or 13 hours each day in in sessions uh, learning how to do these things better. But as Providence would have it, God was just putting in front of us in our path, both individually and as a couple together, uh, individuals and situations where we could be a voice of the gospel into brokenness. And that is what we are going to be spending our time talking about uh, together today. We have, over this last year, been spending our time in the Gospel of Matthew, and our heading as a church has been uh, towards every member being a disciple-maker. Every member a disciple-maker. That as a church on mission, we are going to be one where every member is a disciple-maker, speaking the truth of the Gospel into one another's lives in various ways. This morning, I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can turn to page 975, and I'd ask that you do that now. As we look at this topic this morning, it's actually a bit of a foretaste for what we're going to be spending our time in uh, in our adult Bible class, which happens at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Uh, what we are going to be spending our time in at the end of January. Uh, we're going to be covering content that teaches and equips us as Christians in what it means to provide biblical counsel to one another with the gospel in mind as we walk through hard things. As is our practice when we read God's word, I would invite you to stand uh, with me this morning as I read Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You may be seated as I pray. Father, this morning as we spend time in your word, I pray that you would use it by your spirit and exhort us as we we need it, that you would encourage us as we need it, that the reading of your word and the discussion of it would be to the benefit of your people and to the glory of your name. I pray this thing and ask this thing in confidence. 
In Christ's name, amen. It's 2 a.m., and the phone rings. You answer it to hear a voice on the other end saying, my marriage is over. A young man has been wrestling with pornography for over half of his life and is finally ready to come clean and desires both holiness and accountability. You notice a woman whose appearance seems to say there's something more going on than the normal changes women experience in weight loss and gain. There's a man who comes to the church, but no one really knows him. His children and his wife seem distant from him, and you've seen, on occasion, anger flare up when in public. What else is going on behind the scenes? You notice the signs of substance abuse or addiction in someone. Someone admits that they're harboring bitterness or or hatred in their heart towards another person. Someone comes clean and says, I'm addicted to gambling. A woman you know has had a miscarriage and as a result finds herself sinking in depression. Another comes forward and admits that they've been unfaithful to their spouse. Still another confides in you that they have been abused as a child and now are experiencing these mixed feelings concerning their sexuality. They don't know what to do with these conflicting feelings because they don't know who they are. Someone you know gets caught in a sin that they had no intention of ever confessing. Someone looks at their life and they tell you that they have lost the will to live. And the weight of what they are facing makes them want to end it all. These are real things. These are heavy things. You are a Christian. What do you do? These aren't all calls and encounters that I've been faced with before, though some of them are. Uh, Some other pastors that I know have, and some of you have had these similar encounters. And these encounters certainly aren't unique to people in our church. Uh, I could have read that list, a list that I just made up, and read it in any church, and there would be people sitting there thinking, is he talking about me? How does he know my situation? Or if not thinking about themselves, having their mind's eye go to the face of someone to whom the situation applies. Verse 1 of our text, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is caught in any sin, if anyone you know is caught up in any sin, someone in the church ought to know and ought to get involved. Now, you might hear this anyone just right out of the gate and think, is that everyone? Is that anyone everywhere? Certainly, that's all of us at some point or another. What about my neighbor or that family member or that coworker? You know, the, the ones, they're not Christians. What, what about them? Well, this passage this morning, it isn't speaking about how we interact with those who aren't followers of Jesus, but those who are in the church. Fellow Christians, those who would say, I'm a follower of Christ. But you see, as Christians, we have a unique responsibility to care for the health of other Christians. And this goes hand in hand with the great commission that we've talked about over the last year in Matthew. 
making disciples, teaching each other what it means to live in light of Christ's teaching, in light of the gospel. So do we care about our neighbor? Do we care about the family member? Do we care about the co-worker who's not a believer? The one who says their marriage has fallen apart? Do we care about that that family member who's a, who's a staunch Buddhist yet who ironically has fallen into some addiction with gambling? Do we care about the coworker who confides in us about their depression? The answer in all of those cases is yes. And in these situations, here's what all Christians are able to do. All Christians are able to do. Point those people to Jesus. Explain the gospel. But as Christians here, as we speak in-house to one another, as a family of believers here, lovingly looking into the lives of one another, the text is talking about anyone. And so we should understand that to mean anyone among us. Whether it's the senior pastor of our church or someone who has just come to understand the gospel. Whether it's that stalwart saint who has sat in our pews for 50 years Or it's the fledgling faith of a child who is still learning what it means to walk in light of the gospel. If anyone is caught in any transgression. So you say, okay, I get it. Uh, We're all equal before God, anyone. But any sin? Are you sure you don't just mean the big ones? That would be easier for us, wouldn't it? I certainly don't mean just the big ones because our text and God's word doesn't mean just the big ones to us this morning either. If anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, as I was reading this, I was wondering why does God cast the net so wide on this one? Why does the, why does the mess seem so fine? Why does he catch as much as he does? Surely there are some sins that are better to just let slide. They're going to grow out of it eventually. Well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? Why couldn't God just say, if anyone is caught in one of those big sins, you know, one of the really big ones, we all know what they are. We don't have to say them. But such a statement fails to understand God's character. And his posture towards sin. It fails to understand that God hates sin. Sin is utterly against who he is. And so while God can redeem those days we have lost to sin, by his grace he does. Even the little sins. Living in sin, being caught up in sin is not his will for our lives in Christ Jesus. I would not want us to be sitting on the eve of 2017 and think we are wrestling with the same sins we are wrestling with today. It is not God's will for your life that you live in bitterness or envy or deceit or addiction or strife or sexual immorality or greed, or ungodliness. Let me say it again. It is not God's will for your life in Christ Jesus to live in such things. In fact, the scriptures say that God's wrath will one day come 
for those who fail to acknowledge Christ as their king and instead choose to live in such things. Uh, Look back at our text. Look at the word caught. It carries with it the understanding that the sin in question isn't one of those one-off manifestations of our flesh. Those things that we do and we are instantly repentant of and we desire not to repeat. No, it carries with it carries with it the image of being tangled, of being confined, of being held, of being unable to shake it. Whether it's for a short season of our lives or for, for the life that you can remember. Barbara and I have four children and the youngest, Simon, isn't quite two. He's, he's about this tall. He's got these bricks for feet. They're really, really thick, but he's not two yet, so they're still really small. We were at a playground together and uh, the kids were all running around and he's big enough that he can climb up and he likes to go down the slide. And so he was up and there was this bridge that went across. And on this bridge, it was a kind of a unique bridge. It was a lattice work of these different shapes, not like just the regular planks. And so he was steadily making his way across as he held on to the rope. And all of a sudden I heard him cry. Now, you have kids, you know what your kids' cries sound like. Some are just the annoying cry where they're just whining. There's the cry that says, um, I'm actually hurt, in which case you're concerned. And then there's the cry that says, I'm not hurt, uh, but I need some help. Uh, I need some help with something. And that was the cry that Simon gave. And so I looked up and, and sure enough, uh, his foot had, had got stuck in the midst of this lattice work. It's just small enough that it kind of fit its way through. And with all of his might, he was pulling, he could not get it out. So I climbed up and I got him to stop wiggling around and kind of turned his leg a little bit and out his foot came. What do you think happened the next time he went across the bridge? His foot got caught again. You think he would have learned the first time, but he didn't. He didn't because he's not even two. And sometimes as we think about our own maturity in the gospel, sometimes we act in ways where we're not even two. We just keep walking across the bridge and our foot keeps getting stuck. And this is the kind of transgression, this is the kind of sin that our scripture is pointing our heart towards this morning. The kind that when you come across it, you get stuck. And each one of us have a sin that is close to us, it hovers in proximity to who we are and longs for us to get stuck. It's harboring bitterness towards another person, having an unforgiving heart. It's succumbing to the temptations affiliated with surfing the web. It's the ongoing pattern of being loose with your tongue or or quick to anger. These are all sins that, however secret or small we make them in our own mind, They long to destroy our witness. Belittle our faith that the gospel of Christ is true. And then dominate our lives. And so there are no small sins as much as we wish there were that we could be caught up in. I don't know if anyone has ever come and apologized to you for something that that you didn't even notice. It was just this little thing. You didn't even consider it an issue. Or you've heard someone confess something, maybe in a a prayer meeting or something like that, and and you thought, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Uh, 
Maybe someone says that they, they grew up around foul language their whole life. They started swearing when they were seven. And now a believer who longs to be growing, there's a guilt they feel whenever, whenever that comes out. Their use of it, though, was back. And they know it's wrong. We might hear them and think, well, that's not really that big of a deal. Like, yeah, it's not great, but like, let's not make too big of a deal out of it. But they would be right to feel the weight of their sin. Because the scriptures tell us that what comes out of a man's mouth is actually the overflow of their heart. So maybe he's wrestling with impatience or anger or hatred, which are the opposite of peace and patience and kindness, the fruits of God's spirit in which we are to be growing. So how a man speaks says something about the state of his soul. And if that is the case, then the little sin of swearing that we think of isn't something we want to brush off as meaningless because its sole purpose is to see you caught and to stunt your growth. Anyone, any sin, no exceptions. Sometimes scripture can be really awkward. So whether you observe it or you admit it, it's anyone and any sin. And when either of these things are the case, to whom and by what means does God, God's word give us direction? Look back at verse 1 with me. It says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Who is to restore the one who is caught in sin? You who are spiritual. In what spirit are you to restore them in? A spirit of gentleness. Notice right off the bat that both of the directors are couched not in human terms, but in spiritual terms. Those who have come to know and believe the saving message of Christ as their Savior and King. Those who can point to God's word, see their own brokenness in light of God's holiness, and point others to walk in the light of Christ. It is they who this passage would call the spiritual. And while there are good and pragmatic things that we can employ, you who are spiritual isn't referring to those who can simply set up a pathway to living piously. But instead, they will plead and they will hack away at the unseen death that longs to manifest itself in our lives daily who see the spiritual root of sin and can discern where it comes from. Ephesians 6 tells us that such spiritual people know that we are up against something that is not of flesh and blood. And they also know how to take it on. Ephesians 6 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And they know how to fight it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making all supplication for all the saints. So we who are spiritual, we don't lead one another to the feet of Dr. Phil for a good old dose of how's that been working for you? Yeah, there's some common sense in some of that. But that's not where we who are spiritual are to lead one another to. We don't lead one another to the feet of Dr. Phil. We lead one another to the feet of Christ, who said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is to the feet of Christ that we lead one another. You may hear you who are spiritual and kind of cross yourself off the list thinking, I might be spiritual, but I'm not that spiritual. I think we can sometimes think of ourselves as uh, incapable of restoring a brother or sister who is caught up in sin. And, and just so you know, if it were just you at work, if it were just me at work, and then I would agree and want us to declare right now for all time that none of us could ever restore anyone in any way with respect to any sin. But again, that would be us thinking in human terms. In spiritual terms, we have the capacity to restore, not because we possess special human powers, but because the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart of those struggling through our interaction with them as we employ the gospel. You see, God uses three things, three things to both expose and eradicate sin within our lives. They're things that we come across all the time. Sometimes we just don't know it. His spirit, his word, and his people. God uses his spirit, his word, and his people. By the Holy Spirit, God's word, the Bible, convicts us of sin and gives others the authority to challenge one another about sin. And then hand in hand, side by side with his people, that's the church, that's you, that's me, that's us together. We are restored to right thinking, a renewing of our minds and the continual cleansing of our soul in Christ Jesus as we confess our sins. And so as Christians, we walk together, a people who are all alike sinners, saved by grace and spiritually competent to restore. We restore one another in two ways. First, we have a spiritually competent capacity within us. And the second is that we have a heart of compassion. As Christians, we are, we are competent to give spiritual direction in as much as we know the scriptures. 
and we are able to apply them to one another's lives. So again, this competency doesn't come from just us alone. We know the work of the Holy Spirit is that it illuminates Scripture for us, that as we read it, it becomes clear to us and we can apply it to our lives and the lives of others. The Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts as we read God's Word. But to apply God's Word, we must know God's Word. And so that's the first half of being competent, knowing God's Word The second half of being competent is to know the state of our own heart, the state of our own heart, particularly as it relates to the the sin or the transgression, as our verse uses, word uses in our verse, that's on the table. Uh, Jesus gives an example when he was interacting with the Pharisees. We read a lot about the Pharisees over our time in Matthew. Uh, They weren't folks that were spoken of highly, but he uses an interaction, and I want to share with that you now, share that with you now. That expose the kind of person who might have the knowledge, but still not be competent to engage what our passage is calling us towards today. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so there is wisdom. There is wisdom in examining our own hearts before God, before going to someone about their sin or engaging them in depth should they come to you with theirs. God, in my own heart, in my own heart, in my own life, am I one who knows your word, and I'm humbly walking in light of it? Am I longing to apply this truth, which seems to be at play in my own life? And this is the foundation, really, on which the compassionate heart finds its footing. I asked before, in in what spirit are those that, who are spiritual to engage those who are caught in sin? Our passage tells us, in a spirit of gentleness, Just look back to our text there. In a spirit of gentleness. Now, the spirit of gentleness that's being spoken of here uh, isn't the kind of gentle spirit that we often talk about, that kind of common uh, gentle spirit that you might hear of, that that person who's not quarrelsome, who's fairly kind, who who keeps a a calm demeanor in a a workplace dispute, who seems to bring maybe a level tone to a disagreement or to a situation. They, They can take the edge off things. We might say to that person, and say it well-meaningly, that person is just, they're just a gentle spirit. And so that is said, and it's said with good intentions. But what the Bible is talking about here, what it talks about a a person with a, a spirit of gentleness, it's not talking about that person in that light. The scripture tells us that gentleness, in the way that God understands it, is a fruit which comes by the Holy Spirit. And among the others listed in Galatians 5.22, in fact, your Bible should be open there. Just allow your eyes to slide back one chapter to chapter 5, verse 22. Look there is what it says. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
So our verse isn't talking about someone with a gentle spirit as we might understand that to be, but about a person in whom the spiritual fruit of gentleness is manifesting itself. Someone whose heart has been changed by the gospel, by knowing their own sinful heart and having trusted in the Christ that we celebrated two days ago, being born in human likeness, that he was also God come to die on a cross, taking our place and taking our shame upon himself so that we who believe in that Christ might be declared not guilty if we place our faith and hope in him, following Christ as our king. Let me put that uh, competency and, and compassion together uh, with those who are spiritual. Again, in, uh, back with that illustration I used of our, our little Simon uh, on the bridge. For me to help him, I need both the competency and the compassion to see his little foot get free and not get stuck again. I didn't need an engineering degree to figure out how to get him free. I just needed to get him to stop wiggling around and then I could pluck it out. Now, had he been in a harder spot, I might have had to ask Barb to climb on up there with me and we would have had to tag team him and and figure out how to get it out or uh, call a construction crew and disassemble part of of the the whole shebang there to get him out. And do you know what? Sometimes that's, that's needed. Uh, sometimes we can't just go it alone alongside someone else. I want to say that that's true for us, for us as pastors. And it's true for all of us. You don't need a PhD in biblical counseling or uh, in theology to be able to help someone in the scriptures. But it could be the situation where you come across someone or someone comes to you and you feel like you are out of your depth. I don't know what to do with this one. I just don't know how to help. I don't even know what scripture to go to. And so there are two ways that we can help in this. Two ways, and we do these things for two reasons. The first is that we can call on other believers that are spiritually competent and ex- and express that spirit of gentleness to come alongside and speak into the situation. I'm, I'm still a, a young pastor at this church, and so I look out and I see many saints in this congregation that have been followers of Christ much longer than myself, and I think have wisdom in the scriptures uh, in ways that I have yet to obtain it. And so there are situations that come across uh, where it is wise for me to ask somebody else, whether it's another pastor or it's another person in the church, this is the situation How might you handle it and trust that God's spirit through his word or at work in them as well? It it might mean asking another member of the church to come and actually walk alongside that person through their trial. It might even uh, call us to enlist a biblical counselor from outside the church or even a medical doctor. And none of those things are wrong and none of those things are shameful. They are all wise and they are all good and they're all tools that God has given us. The second reason we engage others when working towards the restoration of someone who is caught in a particular sin is to protect ourselves from falling into the same sin. Now, that might not be the first thing that you think of. It wasn't what I thought of when I started reading this, but it's something that God's word warns us against. Uh, Look back 
at the end of verse 1. Look what it says. It says, keep watch on yourself. Why? Lest you too be tempted. Keep watch on your own heart because sin is alluring. And don't think for a second that it longs to entangle you any less than the one that it already has in its grips. Now you might be thinking, I, I, listen, I would never be tempted by, I, I would never be tempted to. As I thought about that question and the reality of it for some of us, my mind went to this. If in the throes of Christ's last hours, the Apostle Peter, who saw Jesus perform miracles before him, and who by the power of Christ performed miracles with his own hand, if he in Christ's last hours could deny Christ three times out of a fear of man, then I think we ought to be ones clamoring over one another to be last in line to say, but I would never be tempted by. One of the things that we do as pastors every Wednesday morning is we meet and we talk about a number of things, whether it's situations that we are working through in the church, uh, things that we're planning for, we pray for people, we pray for one another. And one of the questions that we ask one another goes to one another's heart. Not the heart of anybody else, but to one another in that room. How is your heart? Are there any sins that you feel are encroaching on the holiness that you have been called to in Christ Jesus? And we answer these questions honestly before one another. And we pray for one another in light of these things. And we walk with one another in light of these things. Do not underestimate your need, your own need to strive and guard your own personal holiness if you are to help those in the church and fulfill the law of Christ. And when we bear one another's burdens as they battle sin, that is what the scripture says we are doing. We are fulfilling the law of Christ. Look at verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? We know that from Scripture that we are no longer bound by the Old Testament law, that Christ came and fulfilled that. So what law are we fulfilling when we bear one another's burdens? During the teaching years of Jesus' ministry, Christ interpreted, he clarified And he applied all of the moral teachings of the Old Testament. And in his summary of these, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. In John 13, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And so we ask, in what way did Christ show his love for us? While we were still caught up in our sin, while we were still enemies of God, Christ came and bore our burdens on himself. 
He took them on himself on the cross. So when we look at a brother or we look at a sister who is struggling in sin, is caught, as our verse says, and we restore them to the holy life to which they have been called in Christ, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. To love God and to love others as you love yourself is to bear up under sin and trial and temptation for the good of the one who is struggling, but also for the glory of God's name. Christians, now that we have been saved, we must keep the law of Christ. We must continue to love our neighbors as ourselves, restoring one another to right thinking and right living before a holy God, bearing one another's burdens just as Christ showed his love for us when he bore the burden of our sin on the cross. The same Christ that we celebrated just two days ago, we celebrate who gave his life for us. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we acknowledge that our own hearts often drift from the holiness that you have called us to in Christ. We confess that often we attempt to solve our own problems and have a voice into the problems of others in our own strength. And so we confess these things and we ask that by your spirit you empower us as your people to be ones through whom your spirit is restoring one another back to the holiness that you have called us to in Christ Jesus. Give us spiritual eyes that can throw off the flesh and see that which is at play. Father, guard our hearts as we walk with one another through hard things. Give us humility before one another. Break our pride, whether it is a pride that is needed in confession or pride that is needed to be smashed so that we might be useful to one another. God, I pray these things in the light of your word, in the light of the truth of the gospel, so that your church might flourish, so that we as a people might grow in faith and love for one another, and so that your name might be given glory and honor above all others. Amen.